Amen. Praise the Lord for um, his presence and time of worship. Praise God. Amen. Um, let's open up in a quick word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for how amazing you are. The author rightly titled the song Amazing Grace. Lord, you truly do love us despite you knowing the depths of our heart. And when we come to know you more, that is what becomes beyond our comprehension. Lord, sometimes the guilt of our own sin and shame causes us to want to move away from you. But yet, Lord, you teach us continually in your word that your grace is sufficient. So, Lord, I just ask, Lord, that um, you continue to not only, Lord, teach us about your grace, but teach us how you can give us the wisdom to grow. As we learn from your word in this book, I pray that your truth goes out to everyone here and give them something to apply for their own personal lives. In Jesus' name, amen. As it has been mentioned, uh, those of you that have been here, you know we have been learning from the book of Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah is a book in the Old Testament about a man who had a passion for his community. He had a passion for his people. He had a passion for people. Nehemiah started off as a man or a person like you and I. He had a, a job. He came from actual humble beginnings. He came out of a broken people, a people who were in bondage, and he worked his way up the professional ladder. But yet when he got to the place where he was secure for himself, his heart was burdened when he looked around and seen that there were others that were suffering. And so he called out to the God of the universe. And he asked the God of the universe to give him the wisdom to repair the broken condition of his broken people. Now as we come to chapter 9 in the book of Nehemiah, by this time God had miraculously given Nehemiah the wisdom and the tools to rebuild the infrastructure of broken homes, broken walls, a poor community. God gave him the resources. He gave him the people. And he went into their neighborhoods and organized the people who already had the gifts and abilities. They were just too broken to help themselves. He mobilized a broken people and he organized them to help themselves. Nehemiah demonstrated God's love through his example to the people. But in chapter 8 and chapter 9, Nehemiah begins to teach the people a valuable, valuable lesson. 
that when you rebuild systems and structures, you are not complete in what you need as a human being. See, systems don't change people. Many of you have realized when you've gotten to the point where you have gotten a new home, you've gotten a new car, you've gotten a new job, what you find is you're still not happy. There's still a brokenness in your soul, despite the fact that you have fixed your outward condition. Many of you, when you get to the place in your life where you have success, where you've reached some goal that you have to be successful on the outside, you find yourself empty on the inside. Nehemiah also understood that like our Lord Jesus in the New Testament, he wanted to give the people the bread in life to teach them about the bread of life. Jesus would often feed people, he would heal people, but he healed and fed and took care of people in their broken condition so that he can build a relationship with them to tell them their bigger need. For many of you here this morning, despite you being far from God, he has been merciful to you. Despite you not really knowing who he is, he has loved you. But God always demonstrates love for you for a bigger purpose of you knowing him in a bigger need for your soul. God knows that you can fix broken houses. You can fix broken infrastructures, but that doesn't fix the broken condition of our soul. In chapter 8, Nehemiah teams up with a preacher by the name of Ezra that Anderson talked about last week. He teamed up with this preacher who was a scribe. And they began to teach the people that in order to transform the brokenness of a broken soul, and in order to get people back to their creator, who created mankind, who created you, who created me, in order to truly understand how to fix the broken condition of your soul, there's no better place to go than the creator. When you want to fix a broken condition, it's nice to be able to know the person who created it. So Nehemiah begins to teach the people a lesson that many of us, and in particular in this culture, are moving further and further away from accepting this reality. And that is God's word being the center of civilization. God's word, as Anderson mentioned, being how politicians are guided, how those that are in positions of authority are guided, how educators are guided. There was a time in the Jewish community where God's word was on the throne, and it was the center of civilization. 
There was a time in this country where it was one nation under God, where God's word was on the throne. Now it is offensive to have God's word in the schools. It is a separation of church and state. When you turn on the television, all you see is punchlines about church folks made fun of. Church folks, ministers, and preachers looking like clowns, if you please. God's word is no longer respected. If you want to fix your broken soul, we go to the counselor who has been trained properly in human conditions. However, they leave out the words from the creator. Civilization and mankind is seeking to fix itself without the creator of the universe. Chapter 8, as recall, to reestablish the Bible as the center of civilization. And then in chapter 9 that we're going to look at today, it continues the second of three phases that you'll learn through Nehemiah that the God of the universe applies when he wants to fix a broken community, a broken family, a broken individual. The second step in chapter 9 is the process of prayer and confession. For many of us, prayer is something we do at the dinner table when we say grace. For many of us, prayer is something that you participate a little bit when you come to a Sunday service. For many of us, prayer is one of these things where you just kind of call out to God in the midst of a struggle. For many of us, understanding the concept and idea of prayer is becoming foreign. But what we will see in chapter 9 of Nehemiah is that God, in the book of Nehemiah, through Nehemiah, teaches his people the proper principles of prayer. Chapter 9 is a long chapter. We won't look at it all today. We will look at only a few verses because we will look at the first concept of prayer that many of you Christian folks understand, and that is confession and repentance. In Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, we see an example of a community of people who repent and confess to God. Nehemiah chapter 9. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of a day, or quarter of it rather, they made confession and worship the Lord their God. The 
verses 1 through 5 in Nehemiah teaches us the heart that prepares for prayer or the proper heart preparation for prayer. It teaches us what authentic repentance or confession looks like. And we're going to talk about those words that are common for folks that are church folks, but sometimes folks that are not used to church don't fully grasp or understand what those words mean in the concept. But after you see a people who have a heart for confession and brokenness, then chapter or verses six on, you see a model prayer. So for those of you that are following along in Nehemiah, following today in preparation for next week, you might want to read verses six through the end of the chapter of Nehemiah to look at the model of proper prayer. In verse one, we see that the people of Israel, they got together, they assembled, and they did three things. They fasted, and they put on, or they were in something called sackcloth. And then thirdly, they had earth or dirt on their heads. Many of you understand the idea of fasting. The idea related to fasting is that you are giving up a physical need of the body for a greater need of your soul. You are at the point where you are so broken down and burdened and you want to hear from God so deeply that you are willing to give up a need for the body to hear from God. The people of Israel were so broken that they came together and they said, Lord, you fixed our physical condition, but we are a people broken about our sin and about our condition. We are in slavery. We are in bondage. And we are willing to give up something to hear from you. Fasting could be Sacrificing food for a week, for a day, for an hour. Fasting could also be you watch TV at a certain time of the day, but you decide I am going to spend time with God. The concept of fasting is not just taking away food, but it's you sacrificing something in time in your life because you want to hear from God. So they fasted. Then they dress for the occasion. They put on what is called sackcloth in the Jewish culture. It is a way of dressing. It is a ceremonial way of dressing to communicate we are in a sad condition. When you go to a funeral, you don't dress in white. You dress in black because you are communicating to the people in the environment that this is a serious situation and I'm in a serious condition and I am in mourning. 
So they dress for the occasion. They fast for the occasion. And then thirdly, they put earth on their, or dirt on their foreheads, which is weird. I don't know about y'all, but when Easter comes around and Ash Wednesday comes around, and I see people walking around with ash on their forehead, I just think to myself, that's, that's kind of weird. But those of you with that background, that tradition, um, especially if you're Catholic, it means something to you. It's symbolism. It's basically saying, I agree with God about my condition as a human being. Having dirt on your head is saying that I am just a man or a woman. I am sinful. I am lowly from the dust I came and from the dust I'm going to return. And I agree with God about my sinful condition. And I am willing to put ashes on my forehead and not be ashamed because I want to honor the God of the universe and say to him, I agree with you about my condition. Outward symbolism is used often in the Jewish culture, in many religious cultures, in the Christian culture, to communicate a heart condition of the soul. So the Jewish people came together and they said, we're going to take God seriously. The primary lesson here, the evidence of your genuineness to take God seriously is demonstrated by what you're willing to sacrifice. Let me say that again. The evidence of genuine, what the Bible calls repentance, and what you see here in the scripture is demonstrated by what you're willing to sacrifice. The word repentance, let's talk about it for a minute. There's a difference in what we often call repentance and what our kids, when they do wrong, call repentance and what parents and God calls repentance. See, saying I'm sorry is a start. You feel bad about your condition, but the technical word repentance means you are so tired of your condition. You are so serious about the wrong you are doing. You so respect your parents that you are willing to turn away from the condition that you find yourself in or for the sin that you have been committing. The word repentance means turn. The Jewish people were saying to God, God, we are no longer just saying we're sorry. We're no longer just acknowledging our sin. We are saying we are ready to turn away from it. And we are so serious Here's what's going to happen in verse 2. In verse 2, the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners. And they stood. And they confessed their sins and the iniquity of their fathers. The first part of this verse is a challenge. 
See, we're going to take this from the Israelites and their culture to us today because it is relevant. These people were no different than you and I. They were raised up in a religious culture. They had to go to the church house or the Jewish house to do ceremonies. They knew about religious activities. These folks understood what it meant to be religious. However, to sacrifice and give something up, oh, that's a whole nother thing. Now, that's when religious folks get to doing too much when they're telling you what to give up. Because I'm cool with being religious and going to your church. I'm cool with being in a religious culture. But if you ask me to give up something, now, that, now, now hold up now. Now you, just, now you just being a little bit radical. Christian fanatic. Religious fanatic. They first decided they would separate from foreigners. Now, when you first read that, or if you just kind of read in the Bible and you don't meditate and think through it and do a little research, you won't really catch the significance of that. Because, see, what had happened was <laughs> the foreigners were no longer folks that the religious or Jewish people didn't know. They had become part of their culture. They had become part of their community. As a matter of fact, some of them were their wives and children and some of their best friends. The Christian culture and the foreigners' culture, the outside Israelite community had been merged. So there was no longer a distinction between the Jewish culture and their one true God and the foreigners. The cultures had been merged. And so the Jewish people no longer had any awareness or customs of life separated from people who did not know God. There was a religious culture, but there was not a lifestyle difference. So to separate from people who were their friends, to separate from people who they were close to, that was something that many are not willing to do. When we say... Taking God seriously is evidenced by something you're willing to give up. Sometimes God will move on your soul and your heart and you just know it. You sense it. As a matter of fact, God gives you confirmations over and over because every time you come around that situation or that person, nothing goes right. He tries to tell you in your subconscious mind. That don't work. Then he tries to tell you through circumstances. That don't work. Then he breaks you down. And finally, you just wake up and you get the point, I got to let this person go. But the difficulty is you are emotionally invested. So you, what you have to do is make a distinction between what you know is right and your emotions. Some of you, here today, you know the Lord has been moving on your soul. There's a reason why you always show up to church. There's a reason why maybe you're here today. Because you have a heart for God you want to do right. But there's that something God wants you to give up. That you are just 
struggling and you keep holding on to it. You say to the preacher in your heart and your mind when he's preaching, I want to do right. That's why I keep showing up here. But I'm really not ready for that type of sacrifice. See, you're sorry about your situation, but you are not repentant. See, when you hear the preacher say, repent, you might just come up and get a little prayer and say, God, I'm sorry, because you really are sorry. But the evidence that you really want to turn away is that you know that condition or that situation is pulling you away from God, and then you make up in your mind when you leave the altar, I'm done with it. <laughs> you know, you're raising kids, and you get... Um, you, 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 it gets tough, okay? <clears throat> if you have more than one kid, it's really tough sometimes. There's pros and cons. You know, when my kids was growing up, I had two situations that I dealt with a lot when it came to them obeying my standards. One situation is they agreed they agreed with my standards. They agreed that they were right. They agreed that little Pookie that you hanging with, he just got out of jail, juvenile court. You agree with me that he ain't really the best person to hang with. But that's my friend. And although I agree with you that that's right, I'm going to tell you what I want you to hear. Okay, I ain't going to hang with them no more. But because I'm emotionally attached, I'm just going to tell you the right things. But when I leave from you, Father, I'm still going to do what I want to do. Now, when you catch me with that person and then me and you have conflict and beef and you ground me, I do feel bad. I'm sorry. But I'm not sorry enough to turn away. See, I knew the difference between them being sorry and willing to change. See, it wasn't a matter of them not understanding if it's right or wrong. They knew it was right or wrong, but they just weren't ready to give it up. Then there's the other situation with the child. They know it's wrong, but they don't agree with me, but they're willing to obey what I say. See, I know hanging with little Pookie ain't right, but I really like this person, and I don't really agree with you. I think I can hang with him and be all right, but I'm going to obey you. They didn't agree with me. They didn't like what I had to say, but there was authenticity. Authenticity. They were genuine. We were genuine with each other. We didn't agree, even though when they get my age, they'll realize for themselves when they have their own kids, they don't want their kids hanging with little pookie but they're willing to trust me. See, sometimes we don't agree with God. We don't agree with what his word says. We don't fully grasp or understand, but the question is, do you trust him? See, you can still repent and still struggle with the decision because you're trusting the God that loves you. The Israelites said, Lord, 
we're going to separate, although we're struggling with it. The question is, whatever it is that you know God wants you to give up, are you ready to give it up? Fasting, sackcloths, and dirt on their head. In the New Testament, Peter says it like this. Repent, Acts 2.38, when he was speaking to the people. I want you to repent, and then I want you to have an outward expression, baptism, to express outwardly a symbol of what you are willing to do inwardly. See, for the New Testament church, a lot of folks come and they want to be baptized, but they do not fully understand what it means. It becomes tradition. I just want to baptize my child. I just want to get baptized. But in the Bible, if it's done properly, baptism is really an outward symbol of what you are saying you're willing to give up inwardly. You are willing to turn from your old lifestyle. You are repenting, but you are standing before people and before God, and you are getting wet. You are your old self. You are dying to your old self. When you go down in the water, you're saying that old person is dead. When you raise up, you're saying, I'm a new person. Don't ask to get baptized if you are not ready for a total lifestyle transformation and commitment to God. When you are ministering to people, when you are witnessing to them, make sure they fully understand that the gospel, the Bible, is not easy believism. It's not it's information, I believe, but I'm not willing to live for it. Jesus literally turned people away. He says stuff that was so tough. Because living for Christ means that you are willing to give it all up for him. And then you get baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Let me say something here, and we're going to look at this in a little bit in, in Nehemiah as well. A friend said something to me that was um, simple, but it helped me. Um, I was always, and like all of us, wanting to be in an environment where every time I sinned, I was forgiven. And God does that. But he said to me, listen, if you understand the Bible, Jesus healed people, helped people. He healed the woman who was caught in adultery, and then he told her, go and sin no more. See, no matter how many times you mess up when you come to God, he's ready to forgive you. So let's just clear that up. But God is never saying once he moves on you with his presence and you feel good and you walk away, he's never saying, okay, it's all good. Go back and keep doing that. He's always, every time you come to him and you are broken and you are tired of your situation, He's always pushing you to change. It makes no sense when I'm raising my child and they become 18 years old that they still acting like they five. 
My expectation is that they grow. The mistakes you did at five shouldn't be the same ones you keep coming to me and saying, I'm sorry, I just stole your cookies. Okay, you, you in high school now, you going in the refrigerator stealing my stuff like when you was little. My expectation is that there's growth. Repentance doesn't mean I don't love you. It doesn't mean you're not forgiven. It means when are you going to change? What you're willing to give up is evidence of if you're ready. Are you ready this morning? See, God loves you, and he wants to transform your soul. But the question is, are you ready? Verse 2, a couple more things here in verse 2. The Israelites separated from foreigners. They stood and they confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Right here, they did something that some of us may realize right now we need to process and we need to do, but maybe not. We're all in different places. They recognize and acknowledge not only their own sin, but they had been improperly raised or improperly influenced. They first said, we're going to separate from the foreigners. Why? Not to be antisocial or to separate like some weird cult, but they needed to separate from the foreigners so that they can regain their identity. And sometimes we have to go all the way back to those that influenced us and help focus or unfocus our mind on what's right and in particularly knowing God, some of us need to go back and realize that if I do not know God, my parents may, maybe just well might not have introduced me to him. Sometimes we need to go back to our past and understand why we got here. This is Counseling 101, I understand that, but it's also Biblical 101. Sometimes you need to understand that the people in your life that influenced you just might not have influenced you properly. Doesn't mean you don't love them. Those of you that know me know that I tell it all the time. My father, was, he's dead now or else I wouldn't even say this. He was a high-class drug dealer. You wouldn't see him on the street on the block. He was up there with the politicians. The way that he trained me, the way that he developed me as a young man had nothing to do with God. I loved him. When people were trying to tell me when I became a Christian to not associate it with my father, that just wasn't going to happen. I was literally living the Christian life and yet going in and having meetings with my father because I loved him. But at some point I had to realize that in order for me to do what God wants me to do, 
I can no longer do some of the things that my father taught me to do to be a man. Some of us are still holding on to those things. We may not realize why we have those mindsets that led to that lifestyle, that led to our present condition, but we need to process it, think through it, and do a self-assessment. Another reason why they needed to separate is because they were no longer ready to reach their friends. They had gotten to the point where there was no difference or no distinction between their lifestyle as people who follow God and the people they hung out with. Or they were not focused on reaching their friends and loved ones for Christ or for the God of the universe. The Jewish people, some of you have been here when you were a part of the series God Plans Your Life. We learned in Isaiah 42 that God chose the Jewish people so that they would be a witness to the world. In the New Testament, when God calls you and he moves on your heart as a Christian, the purpose of your life now becomes how do you influence others to know God? The question now is, is what you're doing in your life, in your children's life, in your relationship life, is it bringing those people closer to Christ? If not, what has happened is your friends and foreigners have influenced you. See, it's not just that you are not sharing. It is not just that you are not sharing the gospel, but it is that you might be living like them. Or it may be that you are not just not. You are living, not living like them, but you're not sharing the gospel to influence them. Either way, that is not what God designed for you. They were no longer ready to reach the lost, so they had to separate themselves for a moment for a revival. Is there anybody here this morning who might need to separate themselves for a revival? See, some of you are visitors. I know you might not even be Christian, and we ain't got that many people here. But what I do know about many of you is that you have Christian background, you are a Christian, but you have non-Christian friends and family members that you invite and you want to influence. But it might be for some of us that we need to get away for a moment so that we are ready to reach the loss. That we need to separate for a moment to be revised so that we can help our children, our friends, and our families. You're not ready to go into a marriage or a relationship or any relationship if you individually first don't have revival with yourself, with the Lord your God. I know that's a tough one. Finally, verse 3, and this will be short. They had church for six hours. We started at 11, let's see, it's 12.30, and then we already ready to go. But when I started preaching, it was a close to 12, I'm just saying. <laughs> In verse 3, they stood up and they read from the book of the law for a quarter of the day, and then they worshiped the Lord for another three hours. 
See, you can't do this when you're just hanging with your non-Christian friends. When they invited to church, it's hard to have a three, six-hour service when it's a seeker service. And that's traditionally what you see in churches today. It's a mixed people in the congregation. And so that's why it's not really wise to have church too long for those folks. The leaders really have to have wisdom to understand their strategy. If you want to have church for six hours and praise them, it's probably wise to separate and do that yourselves with your people. So they knew they needed revival, so they knew they needed to separate themselves and have a revival. But see, revival ain't just Christian activity. Revival is saying, I'm ready to change. They separated and they learned the word of God. And then from the word of God, they learned how to pray, which we'll look at next week. You can't learn how to properly pray if you do not know the word of God. It's how God designed it. The word of God, as I mentioned before in a sermon, is a sword of the spirit. God doesn't want you to pray or talk to him like when you were five years old or three years old, if you've been a Christian 10 years. You don't want your child talking to you like a baby when they're a teenager. So there's an expectation of growth. When you are in a service or when you're in churches where it's all about activity and there's no spiritual growth and development in the word, you always are just having activity and you're never growing. Ezra and Nehemiah realized that the people were broken, but they would never get to the position they needed to be until they had God's word in their heart. They took three hours to know his word and then they say, now let's worship the right way. As we close, another reminder. Are you broken? Are you ready to change? All of us are in different places here this morning. But if you want to transform your life and go to the next level with your creator, if you want to know him more, if you have questions for God and you just don't know what to do, if you're always coming to church but you never fully understand what your purpose is. Go to that phrase up there for me, Anderson. I'm willing to give up. If you really, really want to see God and know that he exists, because he does, I'm here telling you, a man standing in the flesh who came from a broken background, that God exists. I am not prophesying to you to get anything from you. I'm prophesying to you to tell you that he is real. I encountered him. Kids, it is not a fairy tale. It's not Santa Claus. He truly exists. Those of you that know me know that I do not play religious games and ask things for people. I give things to people. Model it like Jesus did and like he called me to do. God is real. He sent me to this town for these moments to tell you he exists. But if you really want to know him, the evidence of that is what are you willing to sacrifice? You cannot have the same lifestyle. You cannot 
be living in sin and know God. He is the Holy Spirit. If you want to know him, you have to be willing to sacrifice to know him. There is nothing in this life you will get that's worth getting without sacrifice, and that is no different than knowing your creator. If you want to know somebody, you got to spend time with them. My prayer in my heart to you is not some fancy message, not some creative sermon, but my prayer in my heart to you is that you're willing to give up whatever it is you need to give up to know him because there's nothing in this world more worth it. He will bless you in this life and you will have a guarantee of eternal life. If you do not know the Lord here today, my heart and my prayer is that you're willing to repent, that you're willing to turn away, that if you're tired of doing it your way, my heart and my prayer is that I think Anderson will be up here, is that you will pray a prayer of repentance and say, Lord, the time is now. If you know him here today, I pray that you're ready to return that you're willing to be to separate with us a core team at Radius so that Radius and Dream Center folks, God has built an infrastructure. The structure is here, but the Lord has said to me clearly in my heart, we are not ready. We have built the infrastructure. God has given us everything. We know the people, but we have to separate ourselves. We have to be unified. We have to be focused for the spirit of the Lord to really reach the community. Christians, return to God first. You don't know him, turn your life to him. In Jesus' name.